We are continuing in John chapter 15. There are three divisions of this chapter, and it actually runs into chapter 16, verse 4. The first is the metaphor of the vine. The second is the explanation of the metaphor. And now the third section that we're dealing with this morning, and we're going to be dealing with this in more than one part. So this is part one. But in this last section, Jesus is warning them of the coming persecution. As we read in the text this morning, John fifteen seventeen forms a transition from the second to the third part of the divine discussion. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The command was first given in John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment, he says, I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And in chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus answered his own on the basis of their love for each other, that that love was the same love that the Father had for him and that he was loving them with that love. That is an amazing truth. His own were to abide in this love by keeping his commandments as he kept his own father's commandments. That's verse 12. So love is characterized by sacrificial self-denial to promote the welfare of others. Self-denial then is to be patterned on Jesus who laid down his life for his friends. Verse number 13. So closing the second portion, Jesus reminded them, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain. The fruit yielded by one's abiding in the vine includes three things. Character, living holy, a holy life. Conduct, living a righteous life in that holiness, and converts, people brought to Jesus Christ through you by your holy living and righteous conduct. This must be the focus of everyone who professes to follow Christ. The ifs, then, in the succeeding verses, define the real condition of the supposed follower. If you don't uh, keep these conditions, then you, we've got a problem. So those who love Christ, keep his commandments. That's 14 verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And they will abide in him. 15.4, he says, Abide in me as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. And then abiding in his love there in verse 15 and verse 9, he said, Abide in my love. Remain in my love. So, why does he give us this little this statement here at this point, this, verse, this 17th verse? And I believe the reason is, he is preparing them now for the shock that they're going to get when he leaves. And what is that shock? The world's going to hate you. 
The world hates, hated me before it hated you. And because you're identified with me, it's going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. One of the great blessings, and sometimes I wonder if it is a blessing in America, is that we have not had to participate in the, in the persecution and suffering that so many have. You get these magazines that talk about those persecution that's going on in the world and reading their articles, and you say to yourself, we, we've never had to endure anything like this. But we may have to. And, I'm, and I kind of wonder if it's not going to be sooner than later. But Jesus said the world's going to hate you. And, it's, and even though we may not suffer severe persecution, we still have to stand for the hatred of the world. And one of the great problems, I think, among churches today is the fact that we tend to want to compromise our stand so that we can kind of deflect that hatred a little bit. I don't want to be hated by the world. I'm a people person. <laughs> I like to be liked. I don't think everybody likes to be liked. But Jesus said, they hate me, they're going to hate you too. So this, this is the reason, to remove the shock of the persecution that the disciples will face after his departure, Christ warned them of the hostility and that they would face due to their relationship to him. And the reason for the persecution centers on God's giving a people to Jesus. See, what, what we are faced with here is what I refer to as two-kingdom theology. Very strong in this matter. What is two-kingdom theology? God has come into the world to establish a new kingdom. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is the King of the whole earth. Now the world doesn't recognize that. In fact, I just heard a fellow talk about the fact that we're going to replace that God of the Bible, that God of the Bible, we're going to replace him as people. That's what they want. I don't want some God telling me what to do. I am, I'm my own God. I'm going, to tell, I'm going to decide for myself what I want to do. But really, the, Satan's plan isn't that you will have the opportunity to be your own God. <laughs> There's an elite group that want to be God over you. But God says, here's what I'm doing. I'm coming into this world to take out of them a people for my name. That, that's what Jesus prayed in the 17th chapter there in verse 6. Now his own are sojourners. We're, because he took us out of the world, we are now sojourners. We are sojourners and exiles. I'm going to talk a little bit about the principle of exile in the Sunday school hour. But in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 11... It talks about this. We're sojourners and exiles. And as we, because we are, we, we're to live before the world in a way that uh, will, 
will reflect Christ. We're in the world, but no longer of the world. And so then considering this, he says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. We're kind of foreigners right here. So we got to get together. Isn't that how usually how it works here? When people come into this country from another country, they kind of in a, come to a city there, they kind of tend to congregate in uh, areas according to their previous country. So you have Italians and you have uh, Spanish and you have various groups there that live in their communities. That's the same principle that's applying here. That's what a church is. We are a community of foreigners. And we have one thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ. And we're not really appreciated out there by the others because they don't like Christ either. So these sojourners now constitute a new community of love that stands in opposition to the wicked community of the world. And since the world hated Jesus, his own would then also be hated. And in light of this, they would need to encourage one another in a place of refuge, the church. As the apostle exhorted the persecuted Hebrew Christians who were saying, well, you know, this is really hard. I think we may go back to the old community. And as I pointed out at the table, Paul said, you can't do that. The old, that old community's done. So we're to, to draw near and not neglect the assembling of ourselves together there according to Hebrews 10. And the hostility of the world began when the Father sent the Son into the world to redeem a people for His name. And coming into the world, Jesus called those He would redeem out of the world but he would also leave them in the world. He's going out, but he's leaving us here. So he prayed then in that 17th chapter, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Listen to that. Are, are Christians one today in the world? Hardly. <laughs> Hardly. I, I believe the day is coming when that's, that's going to change. That's why I'm praying for revival. But keeping them then is more than eternal security. When Jesus said, keep them in your name, it's more than just uh, you know, watch over them and don't let them fall away. You know, give them eternal security. I believe what he's telling them is keep them doing the purpose for which I am calling them to do and leaving them here. That they may be one even as we are one. And this is the natural response of, of the human heart and it's dangerous to uh, one's spiritual fruit bearing to get comfortable with the world. So don't allow them to get comfortable with the world. And in answer to prayer, in Jesus' prayer, God allows Christians to be persecuted. Here's an example there in the book of Acts. After Pentecost, 
the church expanded. 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost and then 5,000 later. And it says, and the Lord was adding to the church daily such as were being saved. Oh, I pray that prayer. Lord, answer that prayer that we could see that today, that he would be adding daily to his church such as were being saved. And what, what, one of the other things that we read there is that they had favor with all the people. I mean, Christianity was the big thing in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm sure that the rulers and the priests and so forth in the temple were not happy about it, but the people were. They said, wow, this is great. And, it's, and probably because the Christians were taking care of each other and taking care of the poor and helping those that were having needs that the others should have been doing. So they were having favor with all the people. But what, what happened? As a consequence, they were failing to obey Jesus' directive in the very first chapter, the eighth verse, when he said you will receive the Holy Spirit and after that you're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the utter parts of the earth. But they're happy just to stay in Jerusalem. So God said, i I got to stir the pot. <laughs> so what happens? They arrest Stephen. Stephen stands before them and delivers a powerful message that really brought the ire of the leadership of Jerusalem. And they stoned him to death. The first Christian martyr. And part of that the company that put him to death was a fellow by the name of Saul, an aspiring young man that was looking to be elevated to the uh, Sanhedrin. He got real zealous real quick and the scripture says, Saul ravaged the church. Entering house to house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's chapter 8, verse 3, right after the stoning of Stephen. What happens next? Many fled Jerusalem and scattered over the land. And so we read there in verse 4 of chapter 8, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now they're following Jesus' directive in 1.8 to take the word of God to the ends of the earth. And the whole rest of the, of the book of Acts documents this expansion of the gospel to the known world of the time. God even con then converted the persecutor as he is going up there to Damascus. To persecute the church. Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks. Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. What would you have me to do Lord? <laughs> he said I, I'm going to show you what you're going to do. And you're going to, be, you're going to face the same persecution that you've been dishing out. Wow. So Paul then preaches the faith that he once persecuted. Jesus left his own in the world to witness the gospel to those of the world and persecution works for the good of his people due to their natural proclivity to seek comfort in the world. 
We like to be comfortable. I read this from Simon Liu, who said, The mission of the Christian is fearless faith in this deadly world. To be a true Christian, there is no death, only a change of address. We don't need to fear death. Some of you may die, Jesus said. We don't need to fear it. It's just a change of address. So then secondly, there is no neutral ground when it comes to following Jesus. And this is, imp- this is really important. And I think this is one, one area where the church fails again. We preach the gospel. We, we make it so simple and pablum-like. And it is simple. But we fail to warn them that when Jesus says he will save you, he means you become his exclusive property. We're called servants, which in in my opinion is also kind of a compromise (laughs) because it's the Greek word doulos, which means slaves. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants me exclusively for him. And why? Because not following Jesus is to side with the lost and hateful world. So we read there in James 4.4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, it makes himself the enemy of God. Are you God's enemy because of your friendship of the world? So following Jesus is very costly. One must die to self and surrender everything to the will of God. Only he who does the will of God abides forever. This means that he must give up all that he previously cherished. He may even have to die physically for Jesus. So Jesus says there in Luke chapter 9, Verses 23 to 27, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in His glory, in the glory of His Father and of the holy angels? Then in Luke 14, verses 23 to 20, or 25 to 27, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Now, hate here doesn't mean in the hateful negative sense that we are accustomed to understanding hate. What Jesus means here is, if you don't put them in second place, they come before me, you've got a problem. Whoever then does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And oh, how we are so accustomed to promoting all that we have. Thus, we can't, 
we must preach the gospel and we must warn the prospective disciple of the cost. Such warnings then will discourage false professions. Uh, this is how Jesus worked and this is how we're to work. So that brings me to this, what is the world? And the term world has various uses in, in the New Testament. But basically, here's what it is. Number one, world in Scripture refers to the physical realm, the created order, as distinguished from the unseen spiritual realm. Earth and world, the term earth and the term world are often used synonymously. For example, in Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, we said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. That's verse 1, actually. The Hebrew term here for world specifically refers to inhabited region of the earth. The inhabited region of the earth. That's why God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then to Noah after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The Greek word for world is the word cosmos. And we get our English word cosmetics. What is co what are cosmetics? That's what people put on their faces. You know, to beautify them. Use cosmetics. But what is cosmos? It describes uh, an apt and harmonious arrangement. That's what cosmetics do. See, an apt and harmonious arrangement of the face. Some, some overdo it, some underdo it. Some could use a little and some could, could uh, use a little less. <laughs> but cosmetics. An apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution or order or government of, of the inhabitants of the earth. The ungodly multitude that is alienated from God and hostile to Christ and his cause. What happened after the flood? When God told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, they stuck together and started building a tower in rebellion to God. So God confused their languages and scattered them. That's the kind of thing that we're faced with in the world today. People hate God. So we have this fellow that's going around there telling people, the God of the Bible is dead. And what we need to do now is bury his body. And what he's talking about is the church. The God of the Bible is dead. We're God. And our technology now is going to make us gods. So we can control you. You every thought you think, you know, Google. Google is getting there. I mean, you could talk about something and all of a sudden you're seeing advertisements on your phone for the thing that you just talked about. Google's listening. They're watching you. And they want you to conform to them. Not God. That's the world. The Greek word. Cosmos. An orderly and harmonious arrangement of men 
alienated from God, hostile to God, haters of Christ, and haters of His cause. The Greek word for earth is gay. And it refers primarily to the land, to soil, to ground, to countryside. It also refers to districts and countries, for example, the land of Israel. But we read there in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, but I have asked, but, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone to, the, to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Which, in which he's quoting there in Psalm 19 and verse 4. So although originally created and, and declared very good in Genesis 1 verse 31, and though, but through Adam's sin, the world became corrupt. So in chapter 6 verse 5, God saw that uh, the men in the world were corrupt totally corrupt we believe in total depravity thus the world became to mean the society of wicked men in rebellion against God and the Bible teaches total depravity Jeremiah 17 9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and desperately sick actually incurably sick who can know it or understand it no, yada, which means to know by learning. The heart is deceitful above all things. That's your heart. And it's incurable. And, it's can't, and it can't be figured out by human terms. I think what Jeremiah was doing here was deliberately using a covert reference to Jacob. The Old Testament refers to Jacob again and again and again to describe this character that God saved and made and changed his name to Israel, Prince with God. Or actually, Israel means one who has prevailed with God. Jacob to describe the human condition. And why? Because of the root word that's translated here, deceitful, means to supplant. The heart is, is a supplanter. Literally a heel grabber. The heart is a heel grabber. Just like Jacob. So we read there in Hosea chapter 2, 12 verse 3 in the womb he took his brother's brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God that's Jacob Jacob means supplanter heel grabber he grabbed Esau's heel why because he wanted to be the firstborn even in the womb he grabbed his brother's heel to pull him back so that he could be born first that, I think that's the, the emphasis of it. And then afterward, he stole the blessing from his dad. But then when God was dealing with him, the brook Jabbok in, the, in Peniel there, 
his, he learned that his brother Esau was coming to kill him and had an army. So what did he do? He strove with an angel. You know what he was trying to do? He was trying to get a blessing from God in his own effort. So he wrestled there with God at Peniel. He sought to then to obtain these two privileges in his own effort, by his own strength. And isn't that doesn't that describe the human condition? We want to be first. We want to be the top dog. And we want God to bless me. God, you will bless me. God, and God blessed him, but not because of Jacob. Not because of Jacob. So God granted him the blessing, not because of Jacob's strength either, but because of God's elective purpose revealed to Rebekah earlier when she prayed about the two babies that were struggling in her womb. And God said, two nations are in your womb and two peoples are from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. That's the older, but the older shall serve the younger. That's grace. Jeremiah 17.5 that came just before verse 9 uses language familiar to the Jews of his day to remind them that they supplanted Yahweh. Here's your problem, Jeremiah says to the nation of Israel. You supplanted Yahweh. Just like Jacob supplanted his brother, you're supplanting God. You want to trust in man. And then you want to deceive God into thinking that you are trusting him and not man. But the truth of the matter is, you're not trusting God, you're trusting man. So cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. This is what defines the world and this is what defines Jacob. But God saved Jacob by grace. Thus, then God determined to restore the earth by saving the world. See, here's why they hate Jesus. God says, I'm here to fix it. He began this process by calling out of the world a people for his name. Acts chapter 15, verse 14. And the restoration then requires that God's sending his son into the world. Jesus came into the world. This is an amazing truth. God came into the world to save the world. I think that's what John 3, 16 and 17 and 18 is all about in the gospel. Is God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't didn't come to judge the world. He didn't come into it at the first point to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And thus, he becomes the firstborn among many brethren, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
just as sin came into the world and through one man, death, through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why they hate him. They don't, they don't think they need it. So, in conclusion, the world stands in opposition to Jesus because he is king and lord over all the world. And we see this here in, in his answer to Pilate, who represents here the world. And Pilate asked Jesus, So you are a king? There in John 18, verse 37, Jesus responded by saying, You say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Do you listen to that? To bear witness to the truth. And then, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are you of the truth? See, this is the point. And the world operates then by lies and deception. So we see it then in in, uh, Pilate's snide response. What is truth? I want to make my own truth. I want to live by my own truth. You've got your own truth to live by. You don't confuse your truth with my truth. Lies and deception. Darkness. They hate the light because their deeds are evil. And Jesus brought the truth. He's the light of the world. And we are lights in the world. Salt and light. So the world hates us. Jesus taught that there are two kingdoms that overlap in this age. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Christ's followers have dual citizenship, living in the tension of two kingdoms. The primary focus of the, of the believers should be the church being the church. And a local assembly of genuine believers submitted to its duly ordained officers, practicing the ordinances and discipline, and regular meeting, gatherings for worship. And it is God's business to transform the culture, not ours. But we do have a we do have a place in it because we are his servants. Every square inch of this world belongs to the king to King Jesus. His lordship should be felt and manifest in politics, in the arts, in education, and in short everywhere. The work of Christ was not just to save sinners, but also to renew the whole cosmos. And therefore, believers should work to that end. He came to save the world. There is then a real sense in which saints are more like Israelites in exile in Babylon. We're more like exiles in Babylon than we are residents of the promised land. We're not there yet. God instructed the captives sent to Babylon to build houses, plant gardens, have families, and multiply. And then he charged them in Jeremiah 29, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's how we're supposed to live in this world. 
And this is the believer's work in the world today. The earnest calls for transformation assume that because Christ will renew the whole cosmos, then it is the Christian's job to work toward that goal. Thirdly, and lastly, in the, at the same time, the saints must be aware of getting too comfortable with the world. And getting into its scheme. And let me just share this with you. John Warren loves not the world. Cosmos. John chapter uh, 2 verse 15. Verse John 2.15. Paul also exhorts the church at Rome. Do not be conformed to this world. And he, But he uses a different term. Aeon. The age. We live in an age. We're in the world, but we also live in an age. That's called world. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Aeon means age or period of time. The significance of the exhortation is in the word conform. The word conform. Don't be conformed. And it's a compound of two words. To fashion with. To fashion and with. And it means to conform oneself, mind and character, to another's pattern. And so we get the word, our English word scheme. That was a nice scheme. You know, what did you use for that? I used this pattern, this scheme. Comes from that root there. And it's only used twice in the New Testament. Right there in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 and also in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14 that says, Obedient children, do not be conformed to the or do not yeah to the passions of your former ignorance. We've been called out of the world to be transformed into Christ's likeness in holiness. True believers are in the world but not of the world. They must then not work be worked into its scheme, but rather transformed by the word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We pray, God, that your spirit would work in our hearts to to enable real obedience through grace. That we will be truly Christ's followers. That we will be everything that you want us to be as light and salt in this world. And Lord, above all, we really want to see you use us to see souls saved for the glory of Jesus Christ. That this gospel of the kingdom be preached in all the world as a testimony for the glory of Christ. We praise you and thank you for what you do in us today for your glory, for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.